And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, August 1st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, contractors are combing through the House and Senate defense authorization bills. Plus, a union objects to the FAA's return to the office order. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, 75 years after President Harry Truman signed an executive order desegregating the military and the federal workforce, diversity and integration still generate conflict over how far the military has come and what yet needs to be done. Joining me with an update on diversity efforts in the military, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, let's start with how things have changed. I mean, sometimes you look back and you got to sum it up. What's going on? Well, last week, a military family advocacy group called Blue Star Families held a series of panel discussions to talk about diversity in the military. One of the panelists, Ty Sedouli, he was on the naming commission that renamed the Confederate monuments, and he's a former head of the history department at West Point, and he wrote a book called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. So he kind of ran through a quick history of what happened since that executive order in 1948. He said that by 1951, there was only one group that was integrated in the military, And that was the dead at Arlington National Cemetery. The manpower requirements of the Korean War finally kickstarted it a little bit because it meant that local commanders needed to start integrating their units. The last black unit was in 1954. But in 1963, black families still had segregated housing and black children still went to segregated schools. As for the leadership, the Army had 3% black officers. The Marines and Navy had 2%. And 10 states in 1963 had no National Guardsmen who were African-American. In 1969, in fact, Mississippi had exactly one National Guardsman who was Black. It was only after the Vietnam War, when the volunteer force was created, that conditions started to get better. They needed people to volunteer, and if they didn't make it attractive enough, Black people weren't going to volunteer to be in the service. Here's retired Brigadier General Ty Sedouli. When does it really desegregate fully? It's the all-volunteer force that does it. And when that all-volunteer force, after the terrible things that go on during the Vietnam War, to have an all-volunteer force means you must have equality, you must have equal opportunity. So the senior leaders of all the services realize that there is a problem with systemic racism in the military, and the only way to fix systemic racism is with systemic solutions. So the equal opportunity offices are created. All right. So if you fast forward now to 2023, it's already become a political debate in Congress, you know, over the military and some of the diversity and inclusion and equity efforts. What are some of the current problems service members and the services might be facing at this point? You're right about all those things, Tom. But a study last December by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace found African-Americans making up 19 percent of active duty enlistments in the military, but only 9 percent of active duty officers. And at a higher rank, only six and a half percent of general officers identified as black. So the Blue Star families surveyed military families who identified as racial minorities and asked them what what problems they had. And what they said is that they often felt scared in their communities and that their children were bullied in school. Here's Blue Star families' Anisha Myers. 
And right now in the military, retention is very, very low. You know, like 38% of military families of color feared for their personal safety because of discrimination. And almost 36% of active duty families responded that their children experienced racially and ethnic motivated bullying. And beyond that, there are issues specific to women serving in the military. And we've heard lots of stories about sexual harassment and abuse and so forth and military responses to that, Alexandra. What else are they saying these days? Those are all good points. And women are still not equally represented in the top ranks of the military. There was sort of a breakthrough in the last couple of weeks. Admiral Lisa Franchetti recently got the nod to be the first female chief of naval operations, which would make her the first woman to be the head of a, one of the service branches and also, one of the, and also the first woman on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But the services do still suffer from problems with sexual assault and sexual harassment. Ty Seduli had an interesting take on it. He talked about the way women's integration in the military was handled as opposed to the way it was handled for racial minorities. Here's Ty Seduli. The, the one interesting thing, at least from the 70s, is when the equal opportunity offices start and really put a lot of effort uh, into ensuring that race is no longer as volatile as it was in the end of the Vietnam era and the equal opportunity expands service-wide, it fails when it comes to women. It does not put the same amount of effort that it had looked at race into women. And I think we are still paying the price for that today. And you have said, Alexandra, that some progress has been made very recently with the new chief of naval operations. But generally, what kind of progress then are people reporting? Sidhuli sounded pretty optimistic when he talked about progress for women. The academy chiefs have all said that there are more women in the academies than there used to be and more positions are opening up for women. But he also cautioned that there are still barriers to women's promotions. He said senior leaders should be mentoring younger women to help them move forward in their careers. And he said that more opportunities still need to open up. Here's Ty Seduli again. I think one other thing to remember with uh, women serving is that it's been less than 10 years, less than 10 years since women could serve in all different aspects of all the combat exclusion has gone for infantry armor. And there are still many branches in the Army that have almost no women, special forces, SEALs, um, uh, some pilots. So we have lots of work to do to ensure that women aren't just tokenism in many of these branches. So we have, we have a long way to go. And, of course, there also is the question that the Army has to, and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines and the Space Force, have to maintain their lethality their ability to prevail over the enemy, no matter who's serving. And I imagine that context came up also. It did. And we talked about it a little bit. Uh, One of the things the Army has been talking about is their physical fitness standards. And there have been members of Congress who say, well, you have to be able to carry a 220-pound man, and that needs to be the standard. General Seduli's take on that was, well, there should be a limit on how heavy you can be if you want to be carried. But there are standards for men and women, and not every role is going to require someone to carry anyone else. So I think the services are kind of fine-tuning what they want to ask people of physically based on what their actual job in the military will be. Sure. So then the summary is some progress has been made in decades, but some more work to be done. I think that's the summary, Tom. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a union objects to the FAA's return to the office order. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The FAA's order for employees to return to the office didn't sit well with at least one of its unions. They call the order a clear violation of their collective bargaining agreement. We get more now from the president of the Professional Aviation Safety Specialists, Dave Spiro. Mr. Spiro, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And just to set the scene here, exactly how many members do you represent at the FAA and what do the aviation safety specialists do there? So we represent over 11,000 employees at the FAA. We have a bargaining unit in the DOD as well, but they install, maintain, support, certify air traffic control equipment and inspect and oversee both the commercial and general aviation industries and all the support functions that go with it administrative, safety professionals, logistics folks. We got them from soup to nuts. And just before we get into the collective bargaining and the clauses and so forth, it sounds like the type of work where you got to be on the job anyway. Well, it depends. It depends where you are and what you do. And I think that's some of the argument that we're making uh, with the FAA, that they have to establish whether or not the request of the employees to telework is workable and whether or not it has an effect on the efficiency of the service. And, and some of those jobs, yes, you're right. We have to be in an air traffic control facility or uh, in some capacity on the job because that's where the work is. But that's not always the case with our aviation safety inspectors. They could be living in New York and overseeing the commercial operators in California. Wow. All right. So what is the, I guess, state now, aside from the FAA order, but prior to that, what's your sense of the level to which people were teleworking generally? So on the aviation safety side, a significant number of them were teleworking. They were across the country. Some of them have virtual facilities. So the way that the aviation safety organization is built, these folks are not, they're not all touching airplanes. Let me put it that way. Everybody doesn't walk out and look at an aircraft. They oversee uh, the industry itself. They make sure that they're doing all the maintenance they're supposed to do. They're keeping their records. They're following the safety management systems that they're prescribed to do under the Code of Federal Regulations. So they do go out and touch aircraft. And, and let me let me be clear, they do go out to have in-person activities. They meet at the facilities sometimes. As required, they do show up in various places. And when we talk about telework for the aviation safety workforce, we're not saying that they're not out there in the field doing surveillance of the aviation safety world. We're saying they're not showing up to a brick and mortar facility every day. Got it. And just as a detail, if you're looking at, say, logs kept for maintenance of aircraft and so forth, that word conjures up big old paper books and people with fountain pens writing and yes, the aileron worked on this DC-6. But in fact, I'm guessing all of that is online anyway nowadays. Absolutely. And it's so extensive and there are so many systems that it's required to be done that way. And clearly, all the commercial operators, all the carriers, and even the charters under 135 and 121 under commercial, they all do that sort of thing. It's to their benefit. So we just make sure that from that perspective that they're doing those records. But we do go out and oversee them on a case-by-case basis. We do certification of pilots. They do check rides, maintenance checks. So there's a lot of work that these folks do in the field. And this decision to say everybody's going to show up on a Wednesday and everybody's got to be in the office six days a week is ridiculous. We're speaking with Dave Spiro. He's president of the Professional Aviation Safety Specialists, one of the unions representing FAA employees. And so tell us about the collective bargaining agreement and what the clause or clauses are in there now 
that you feel are violated by the FAA order? Clearly, the edict, just go out there and say, all right, six days of pay period, you're going to show up at work, and Wednesdays you're going to come in, violates our contract where it talks about specific criteria that management is supposed to follow when they grant or deny a request. First, how reasonable is the request of the employees? Secondly, is it workable? And thirdly, what's the effect of the request upon the efficiency of the service? They have to look at all of these criteria in a fair, objective, and equitable way, and they have to use sound business practices, not arbitrary limitations. And that language is right in our contract, not arbitrary limitations. So in our opinion, this is an arbitrary decision by the FAA's management board. They're telling us that they're following the OMB direction, but the OMB direction tells them to do exactly what's in our collective bargaining agreement, make sound business practices and not arbitrary decisions. So we're pursuing it from that perspective. And what have you done to pursue it so far? Have there been talks and have the FAA management people been willing to sit down and hear you out? I mean, what's the status of all that now? The answer is yes. I I think that we certainly got their attention. They have reached out to us. We have had some preliminary discussions around it. Uh, We've been clear that our collective bargaining agreement has been violated. We do not feel as though there's room for a compromise here. Uh, They have to follow the contract, and that's clearly what we told them. They are reaching out to us frequently, three times this week. I've had conversations with senior leadership at FAA, and I think they are concerned as to how this rolled out. And, you know, to be quite honest, I don't think that senior leadership got good advice from labor relations on this within their own organization. That's a problem. From what you're saying, I get the sense that labor relations, at least between PASS and the FAA, are generally pretty good, except for this. Well, you know... (laughs) Or am I overstating it? (laughs) You might be a little bit. I would say, look, we're not in a cold war with them right now. Let Let me say that. We are negotiating two collective bargaining agreements. Right now, for the aviation safety workforce, we've been at a collective bargaining agreement for 18 months. We are having some breakthroughs now. And I think that maybe, according to the agency, I think there's a some willingness to put that to rest, but we still have to finish a contract for the air traffic organization. Those are big, heavy lifts for us as a labor union and, and to be doing two contracts at once. I think we're going to accomplish it pretty soon. And when that happens, there will be new provisions for us to work together on. And hopefully we'll have provisions around collaboration, which will put to rest some of the LR uh, issues that we occasionally have. And do you interact with NATCA, for example, the controllers themselves, their union, and do you kind of coordinate these types of issues ever? Thanks for asking. So, yes, we do. You know, since I came into this position uh, as president of the union, one of the first things I did was reach out to the new leadership over at NACA. And we've consistently been building a relationship over there. Uh, um, Rich Santa and I from NACA talk uh, pretty frequently. Uh, and we even talked about this issue uh, last week. So we're on the same page with these things. And uh, we do have a good friendship and a relationship as labor unions together. And of course, NATCA members, they are by necessity on the job in the towers, pretty much fair to say. I would say with the air traffic controllers, that's you know pretty much the case. I, I was a technician for many years and worked around them. I can't speak for NACA, but I do know that they do have a significant number of folks that represent engineers and other bargaining units as well. So they do have folks that are capable of not needing to be in those facilities. And they have a pretty good beef too with the agency on this. 
So are you seeking then for that order to just be rescinded and then things to continue as they have been? Because I guess the evidence shows the planes aren't crashing and the records are being kept and the equipment is getting installed. So are you looking for things to be as they were prior to that order coming out or something else? We are. I think that the order needs to be rescinded, at least for our bargaining unit employees, the people we represent. They're you know clearly free to do whatever it is they want to do with non-bargaining unit employees. But at the same time, we've been able to show that we're able to keep the national airspace system moving and running. And I think that from that perspective, it's something that they got to respect and understand. And if they want to have more scrutiny over telework and what it looks like, then they need to follow our collective bargaining agreement to make that happen. Dave Spiro is president of the Professional Aviation Safety Specialists, PASS, one of the unions at the FAA. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on today. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that Supreme Court affirmative action decision is already affecting federal contracting. But first, contractors are also combing through the House and Senate defense authorization bills. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The defense authorization bills, while contentious, would do a lot for contractors, from inflation relief to easing greenhouse gas emissions reporting. We get a summary from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. And I guess, Dan, we should begin by noting, even though the House and the Senate have each passed their NDAAs, there are social issues, the abortion travel question, which is keeping them pretty far apart. But you found some things from both sides of interest to federal contractors. Let's start with inflation relief here. Yeah, Tom. So inflation relief, of course, with the levels of inflation over the past few years being unprecedented, have been a real cause for concern for contractors. And there were a number of memos issued by the Defense Pricing and Contracting Office last year, which led up to Section 822 of last year's NDAA, which provided new authority for DOD to provide relief on fixed price contracts for effects solely due to inflation if the costs exceeded the price on a contract because of inflation. And this relief was available to contractors and subcontractors, and there was a great deal of interest in this provision when it passed. The catch, of course, was that it relied on appropriations specific for this relief, and the money never showed up. And the relief expires uh, in December of this year. So the first thing that Congress uh, is looking at doing, and now this is in the House bill, but could easily imagine it being in the, the final NDAA, they're looking at extending that authority another year. But they're also including a second proposed provision that would allow the government, again, DOD, to modify contracts and options to provide economic price adjustments. And potentially that relief would not be linked to this need for an appropriation that was specific. So we need more information about that, but that might be a different avenue that could be very helpful to contractors. All right. Well, anything to do with helping out in inflation and reduction of those costs, I guess, is a good thing. And then there's some bid protest, you're putting it in quotation marks, reform. This is on the House side. Uh, what's going on there? Section 804. So this is a provision we've seen in prior NDAAs, and it actually passed, I think, in the 2018 NDAA. Congress has been talking about this for uh, some time, instituting a loser pays system to discourage bid protests. 
you know, this is uh, something that I think contractors have kind of mixed feelings about because, of course, bid protests go both ways. When you're the awardee, you don't like protests. And when you are the bidder who's been done wrong by the government in the evaluation, of course, you are grateful that you have that mechanism. But more broadly, uh, bid protests provide a real check on the integrity of the procurement system. So they're important. Many of us uh, in the government contracts community are concerned if there are provisions that could significantly deter contractors from submitting bid protests. So I have some concerns about this provision. I've written about them in the past for the Public Contract Law Journal. Part of the issue is, you know, GAO has the authority to dismiss protests that fail to state valid grounds or that are frivolous already. So in this loser pays provision, there's no limitation that the protest be frivolous. If ultimately a protest is unsuccessful on the merits at GAO, then the protester would have to pay the costs, regardless of whether it was a legitimate protest. Uh, And it could be that they just failed to show prejudice. There was an actual error by the government, but they can't prove that it hurt their evaluation and prevented them from getting an award. So there are reasons to be cautious about this reform, recognizing that protests are a hassle for the government, but they do also keep the government accountable. And they're one of the reasons that people have trust in the system, because if the government fails to follow the rules, other offerors can challenge the award. Sure. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And the Senate version would cut away some of the greenhouse gas reporting requirements that have been imposed by order from the Biden administration. And this always seemed like kind of a ridiculous exercise, frankly, for small businesses, services contractors whose gas emissions have to do with heating and air conditioning their offices, basically, or driving to the agency. And it just seemed like an unnecessary burden. But it's interesting that the Senate would have that provision in there. Yeah, Tom, I agree with you. There was a proposed rule about greenhouse gas reporting, and it was kind of an initial foray and would be subject to further revision based on comments submitted by the public. And that's been in process. But if this provision from the Senate bill were enacted in the final NDAA, it would bar any kind of reporting or inventories from non-traditional defense contractors. So non-traditional defense contractors includes small businesses. So Congress here is giving voice to those concerns from the small business community within the government contracts community that this would be unduly burdensome. It's part of the balance that folks in this area have to strike between policy priorities, but the the practical reality is that these burdens have real effects on small businesses and on the defense industrial base. So there comes a time when it's just too much. So Congress is being cautious about that. They also put a two-year pause on any greenhouse gas reporting, even for contractors that are not non-traditional defense contractors. So we'll have to see how this plays out in conference. All right. And then I wanted to ask you about something that both the House and the Senate have included, and that is commercial products, commercial services provision, again, in that 800 series where they tend to put these things. And right at the beginning, Section 801, commercial nature determination memo available to contractors. What's going on there? So the House provision about commercial nature determinations would give the contractors the right to access a commercial nature determination. There's a little bit of ambiguity in the way the language is currently written, whether they would only get documentation if their product or service were determined to be commercial. But I think the intent would be, and they'd have to square this out in the regulations that implement the provision, the intent would be the contractors would get a determination whether it's commercial or not. And that's valuable. If it's commercial, they would be able to then 
show that to agencies for future awards to support the commerciality of their products or services. Or if it's an adverse decision that their product or service is not commercial, they'd be able to potentially make adjustments in their approach to have a commercial offering. So that's potentially quite valuable to contractors that are trying to avoid the red tape that come with non-commercial items. And there's always a study in in DAAs, and sometimes those studies (laughs) take years. Section 806 would require a study on reducing barriers to acquisition of commercial products and services, as if there's any left, I guess, here in 2023, (laughs) 4 and 5, but there it is. Yes. I mean, this is kind of a contradiction. As you say, it's just a study, but the direction of the study is quite interesting. The Congress directs DOD to study the feasibility and advisability of establishing a default determination that products and services acquired by DOD are commercial and don't require a commercial determination. So our system is built around the idea that the government acquires non-commercial items. Congress is looking at what if we flip the script here and say it's commercial unless there's a determination that it's not. And that could have pretty dramatic effects. But again, it's not so dramatic because it's just a study at this stage. Sure. I guess DOD by volume probably buys more commercial than non-commercial. Maybe by dollar, they buy more non-commercial. You know, howitzer shells are maybe common and commodity-like, but they're not commercial items, at least so far. Right. It would be interesting to see how this shifted the balance uh, and for items that are kind of on the cusp whether the modifications that have been made to commercial products are too far to drive them into non-commercial. But the fact that you put the burden of documentation on uh, non-commercial products and services uh, clearly would, would make a big difference. Well, anyway, they've got to reconcile these two bills, and that's another story. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that Supreme Court affirmative action decision is already affecting federal contracting. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. When the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action as practiced by Harvard University, it set off waves, and one of those waves is already washing over federal contracting. With this and a few other matters, we check in with federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And I think a lot of people wondered about affirmative action as practiced in federal contracting, and now there's the first case, and it's not going well for the traditional programs. Tom, what we're talking about here is an article that recently appeared in the Wall Street Journal written by Judge Glock from the Manhattan Institute. And in that article, Glock argues that the Supreme Court's recent decisions in the affirmative action cases considering higher education could also have an impact on the government's contract set-aside programs. Uh, He goes on to cite his arguments where he believes that these programs generally have added cost to government acquisition I'm not here to debate that. We haven't run the numbers. But what he does say is that uh, if you have found a place where you can't use race in college admissions, then you shouldn't really be using race or other socioeconomic factors in awarding government contractors. That could really turn this industry on its ear. And yet we've already seen litigation in this area, a couple of cases that went up maybe 20 years ago to the Supreme Court that dealt with this issue. 
So there is some precedent here, Tom, uh, where the court has said previously that you can use uh, race and other socioeconomic factors in the award of government contracts if it's tailored to meet specific past incidents of impropriety. Right. And the same article cites a case that happened just a week or two ago in which Judge Clifton Corker struck down minority contracting preferences at the Small Business Administration and the Agriculture Department, citing the same thing the Supreme Court said in its case, that there's no logical endpoint to what they were doing. It just was kind of on its own autopilot. So whether that'll spread or not, hard to say, but it definitely could change 8A programs, set-aside programs, the whole basic 23 24% rule that's been in place in which the contracting community has kind of wrapped itself around now for, for a couple of generations. Right, and we can see where those two divergent policies, Tom, uh, could be on a collision course with each other. On the one hand, we have the established set-aside programs for small businesses really kind of turbocharged by this administration's push to increase the amount of government contracts that go to small minority businesses. On the other hand, we have the judge's decision that you just referenced, as well as previous case law that says you can't do minority contracting everywhere all the time just because you want to do it. It has to be tailored to making up for past wrongdoing. That kind of gets in with what the judge said in the most recent case, which is like, at some point, this has to have an end to it. Uh, If you've remedied past wrongs for a certain period of time, the judge suggests that it's time to maybe do away with these programs. Tom, I think that this is another area where we're going to end up with a case that goes before the Supreme Court that talks about Uh, the legality of being able to set aside government contracts by race or other socioeconomic factors. It gets to that whole equal protection under the law type clause. I think it would be a really fascinating discussion to get into with uh, the contract bar and people who follow these things in the legal profession. But uh, from my view, as a professional consultant, somebody who's been in this business for 33 years, I think that's where we're going. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and we'll have to wait and see if there is a case brought. But it sounds like in some of the recent decisions, the court has almost asked for cases in other domains on the same principle on which it just ruled. So we could see a qui tam challenge to the constitutionality of that, which would also turn a lot of long-term tradition on its head. But in the meantime, we've got a more short-term worry, and that is, you know, Government shutdown, so to speak, looks kind of likely, definitely more likely as a full year continuing resolution given the division in Congress. So what's your best advice right now for contractors as, golly, I mean, it's August already. Tom, it is August, and my best advice for government contractors is to do as much positive business in the current fiscal year as you possibly can and understand that the next fiscal year, the one that nominally starts on uh, October 1st, is going to be a little bit bumpy. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about the possibility of a government shutdown. And just last week, before Congress left town for its August recess, we had a member of Congress saying publicly, we should not fear a government shutdown. 
And then he went on to say, Tom, one of the great things uh, about Congress, there are so many divergent viewpoints. This congressman said, most of what we do here is bad anyway. So there you have it. Yeah, great. That was uh, Bob Good who said things. a lot of things are bad. Bob Good from Virginia. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the good and the bad, and I guess the ugly, you might say. <laughs> and in point of fact, as a practical matter, probably 80% of the government functions continue even when there is a lapse in funding. It's the people that rewrite the FAR, that decide policies, that do this kind of thing, are the ones that don't go to work. But so many large sections of the government keep going that the shutdown is less and less fearsome, I think, over the decades. Less and less fearsome, but you know, to be clear, it's also really expensive. It's not just turning the government off. is not as simple as turning off a light in your office. Uh, if you think about lights, just to continue the analogy in a sports stadium, you have to be very careful about how you turn them off. And then when you turn them back on, it's not like they just go back on instantly. It takes a while for them to get back up to the necessary brightness. That's the same thing with government. And if you're really a fan of reduced costs in government, the best thing you can do is work to not have a government shutdown because it's expensive to have one. It's very disruptive to people's spending, very disruptive to people's ability to plan. And while you can say, hey, we shut everything down in order to save a few cents, I'm not sure how many cents you really end up saving if you end up having to restart the entire juggernaut or a substantial part of the juggernaut that is the government market. Right. And just as the government leadership is trying to get people used to the idea of coming back to the office three days a week, right. <laughs> they would be right. home that. again. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is something that uh, our colleague Jason Miller also noted and reported on, and that is when GSA sent out a request for information on a solicitation for Alliance 3 draft RFP, 4,500 questions came in. How are they going to answer all those questions? And these were not auto-generated. I mean, these were quite yeah. individual questions. All right. Uh, I think these are more than double the amount of questions that GSA was anticipating uh, when it sent out its second Alliant 3 draft RFP. It indicates that there's a substantial amount of interest in this uh, solicitation, Tom, which isn't at all surprising. Alliant 2 currently underway has been phenomenally popular. I think one of the real questions that GSA is going to have to address and address very quickly is how they're going to deal with small businesses that would like to get either on Alliant 3 or on another set of small business IT, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts. You know, we've got uh, Polaris that GSA tried to get out the door and the Court of Federal Claims kind of sent a torpedo through the hole there. Uh, Polaris is back in dry dock being repaired. So either they're going to have to get Polaris out and resuscitated pretty quickly, or they're going to have a, or I'm advocating, Tom, that the GSA strongly consider adding small business subcontracts or small business alternatives, companion contracts to the Alliant 3 unified solicitation what I think myself and a lot of other people are fearing is that if there is no small business IT vehicle and Alliant 3 is the only game in town right now, that's going to get bids from businesses of all sizes. 
Tom, we've seen what happens in those cases. Those programs get bound up in web after web of protest with substantial delays. We can't have that happen with Alliant. It's too much of a foundational program. So either GSA has to figure out it's going to add some small business capabilities to that one, just like they did with Oasis Plus, or they're going to have to get busy and get Polaris out of dry dock and back in sea trials. Put it on maneuvers. (laughs) All right. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Contract Policy Guide at the Army Contracting Command at Aberdeen Proving Ground has become a lot like a ship which needs to scrape the barnacles off every once in a while. The policy guide was weighing down the acquisition process and impacting ACC's customers. Danielle Moyer is the executive director of the Army Contracting Command. She tells Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller about how her office cut 60 pages and three months of reviews from the Aberdeen Proving Grounds acquisition process. In government contracting, we have so many roles, right? We have the FAR. We have in DOD, we have the DFAR, which is the FAR supplement for the Department of Defense. And then we have for the Army, the Army supplement to the FAR, to the DFAR. All these books are huge, right? So why do we need additional policy? So that's exactly what I looked at. What is this? Is this providing me value, my people value, the soldier value, my customer value? So literally my first day there, I was given a document to review, and I said, what is this document? I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. And they're like, does this document really exist somewhere? And they're like, oh, it exists in your local policy. And I said, well, I didn't understand how do we have even local policy when we have all these others. So that very first, my very first day on the job, I said, I want an IPT stood up right now to go through everything in this, what it was called our acquisition instruction, and tell me what really needs to exist, what already exists somewhere else, and what is really a local policy that we really shouldn't have. So over the past, you know, couple weeks, we stood up that IPT. Last Monday, they came in and told me, okay, we went through everything. Everything but just a couple pages, which is basically how to process a document, like, okay, if, we, if something has to have your signature, Danielle, how to get it to you, and then everything else was removed because it already exists somewhere else, and we don't need to overcomplicate things to make things take longer. Do you get a sense, I know you've only been there about 44 days, do you get a sense of why this built up? Is it just time and process and people add things and there, there was a problem once 10 years ago then they added a new document is that just a typical buildup? it's it's kind of you remove the barnacles from the boat right exactly it's basically like okay one time something happened and if we put this policy in place it may not happen again but the issue is it also that one thing that happened that one time probably only applied to that one situation right there's things that make sense based on what you're buying so while i think there should be like lessons learned and we should do like program management reviews after the fact where we share things which is really why the dod stood up what they call peer reviews it's basically so that you know we can look across the service and see how other people are doing things and catch things see how we can do things better that i completely agree with but creating policy or additional reviews that just add time to get things fielded or to get the things we need done, to me, doesn't necessarily make sense. And I'm going to weigh the risk of what that was to getting something awarded faster. In the end, you mentioned you removed about 60 pages of, of policy or, or 60 pages in, in, in the policy. You said it equal to about three months' worth of work. I mean, that's pretty incredible. What was the reaction of the lawyers, of your staff, of, of your 
organization. Ecstatic. Everyone wants to do their job and do their part to get something fielded. So it is a culture change, right? Because it empowers, it, it delegates. It empowers people and it makes people accountable for what they're doing. It also puts people in their specific lanes, right? The attorneys, you know, they advise us on the law and what's illegal. They also do provide, they have an AR that tells us how they provide business counsel where they look at precedent and cases and stuff and they can help there. But it also allows my true contracting people to focus on the FAR, the DFAR, the AFAR and getting that thing fielded, you know, to their customers. So once I stood up the IPT, and I mean, I, I haven't talked to, you know, everyone yet about it, but I talked to our main supporting legal office about it. And to be honest, they were like, we didn't know you th- that you created additional rules that impacted us on top of the rules that already existed. So I, everyone has been incredibly supportive because everybody wants to do the right thing. They want to have a legally compliant contract that makes sense, but they want to get it done faster. As you move forward, there's other things you can do to get to reduce what they call, you know, procurement acquisition lead time halt. That's a great first step. Are you starting to look at some other things that says, okay, that was the the fuel low hanging fruit. What's what comes next? Most of what takes so long is how much we ask for when we ask for proposals, right? We ask for these huge technical proposals, all hundreds of pages. And I mean, you know, even just in there, you heard somebody ask the question where they were going to use AI to basically almost regurgitate a PWS. If I'm asking for a company to do that, that's pointless. That provides no value to our, our customers, to, to, you know, the warfighter. You know, my job is to enable my organization to ensure our soldiers never enter a fair fight, right? That's what I should do. So in my opinion, getting after, you know, oral proposals, right? Instead of having putting everybody in a room and reading hundreds of pages to try and not miss something that the RFP specifically called out, if you have oral proposals, if you do a phased approach, right, that's the way you reduce that time even more, right? Also, you know, there are specific roles in contracting. There is a contracting specialist, a contracting officer, what is called a chief of a contracting officer, a COCO, and then there's a SCO, which is me. We have very specific roles. We also have a lot of other roles that we kind of put in the process that added time that we're going to manage risk by seeing where those really should exist and where they shouldn't because, those regulations I talked about, the FAR, the DFAR, the AFAR, they tell us specifically which ones we have. So when we add on additional ones, we're adding additional time to get something fielded. So those are the things that I'm looking to not do. Have you shared this policy review, this IPT team effort with other contracting commands? I mean, I imagine that this challenge that you faced is you're not alone, that, that other agencies, whether within DOD or outside of the DOD, they have these similar problems. They've built up again, the barnacles on the ship for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them are tracking that they're not, that we don't have, you're not to have local policies. So I think most of them are, are well aware. And, you know, I've, I've only been in the job for 45 days. So I try and communicate to my peers. We have like stand up meetings where we meet within the army contracting command. So we do that every two weeks. I have not done one of them with them yet though. I think the, the the lesson here is you have to start that process. You have to start digging through and deciding, okay, just because we did it once, do we still need to do it? Is, was that the biggest culture change that you found within your own group that said, well, but Danielle, we've done this for 10 years. We can't stop. Is, is, is that, did you have to kind of push through that wall? Yes. You know, it's the same thing, you know, the, the, the example that I used in there about the seven-year contract. Well, why only seven? Why not 10? Why didn't you think through this? Like, just getting people to think, hey, just the, because we have did this for so long before, why can't we do it a little bit differently? And some of that, too, is, you know, shaking up the organization, considering, you know, personnel moves and, and things like that. And I think 
people just feel empowered to make decisions and feel like if they make a mistake, I'll have their back. I think that's probably the most important thing that I can do for my organization. You mentioned the frustration of people parodying mm-hmm. the solicitation. If the solicitation says X, Y, Z, and they say, we can do X, Y, Z, that's frustrating to you. That's one of your top three mistakes. I'm going to ask you maybe just to walk through maybe the, the, th- the three mistakes that you see time and again when people, when it comes to folks responding to RFPs. So the main one is the cost how they submit their costs, right? So there is a specific table. It's table 15-2. I'm pretty sure it's in FAR 15-408 and tell them specifically how to call out their cost. So no, normally it's like a table, like here's your direct cost, here's your indirect cost, and here's your other cost. And then we need substantiating data to make sure that makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to hire the world's best engineer who has this SAP experience to develop this next generation of software. And you now propose $20 an hour for that person. And nothing to back it up. Then I'm going to say that's unreasonable. It's unrealistic. Um, it might be, could be fair and reasonable, but doesn't mean it's realistic. So then I might raise your price, which may cause you to lose. So some of it is like teaching people, hey, not only do you have to follow this table, you have to substantiate it. And you have to think through, because one of the things we're going to look at is, if it's realistic, because especially for like services, for like retention, things like that, the main biggest mistake is people don't substantiate their rates and break it down the right way. Uh, ACC will have a cost proposal workshop coming up in August. Yeah. So I'll give you a second to plug that as well. We have an uh, event every year at APG. It's called the Advanced Pla- Planning Brief to Industry. And we bring in all of, the, all of our customers and we brief every opportunity that's coming out in the APG area for industry to take a look at. And before I got the, well, even when I knew I got the job and it wasn't announced, I asked my now office, hey, can you send out RFI and ask industry what they would like me to talk about when I'm there? And one of the things was, like, what can we do better? And across the board of my entire organization, every single one of my, you know, organization said it's the cost proposals. Danielle Moyer, executive director of the Army Contracting Command at Aberdeen Proving Ground, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.